battles, and so far we have seen how we can battle fear, and we've seen how the presence of the Lord gives us courage despite what might cause us fear in our lives. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw how we can battle the ingratitude in our lives, and over and over again throughout the New Testament, we're told to praise and to be grateful and to do everything with thanksgiving. Uh, last week, we saw how we can battle uh, depression and discouragement. We looked at the life of Elijah and saw how God led him to walk through that season in his life and how we can walk through that too. And this morning, we are going to look at how to battle apathy. How to battle apathy. A simple definition of the word apathy simply means an absence or suppression of passion, emotion, or excitement. It's a lack of interest in or concern about something. Now, the difficulty with apathy, though, is that it's, it's not always easy to recognize in ourselves, is it? I mean, I haven't met a lot of people who just were like, yeah, I'm pretty apathetic about things that I know are important. No, it's pretty hard to recognize in ourselves. Oftentimes, it's caused by discouragement or depression. We looked at that, that last week. I'd encourage you, if you want to, go back and look at that. If you feel like, man, maybe I'm being a little apathetic. I, do care. I don't care as much as I should because I'm just discouraged. Go back and re-listen to last week's message. Uh, sometimes we kind of slowly fall into apathy uh, because we're filling our hearts and our minds with things that are of little consequence. And as a result, we kind of entertain ourselves into indifference. Uh, but I think one of the, the large causes of apathy is the fact that we're constantly bombarded by problems. And as we're constantly bombarded by problems that often seem like they are outside of our control, we get so overwhelmed with them that we no longer have the capacity to care. And what happens is we no longer have the capacity to care about things that are in our lives, things that we should care about, things that we do have some measure of influence over. And I think all of us coming out of what we've experienced in the last year and a half, we're going to be faced with this temptation. It's going to be very easy to become apathetic and not even realize it because we've been bombarded with problems and issues and struggles and corruption and tension, political tension and everything that's been going on in our country, the sickness and the disease and everything that we're told to be afraid of. We've been bombarded constantly by these things and so many of them seem like they're just outside of our control and if we're not careful, we'll subconsciously go into this kind of self-preservation mode and just turn ourselves off from caring even about the things that we can do something about. You see, the problem with apathy is that it allows problems to perpetuate. It keeps us from living on mission for God in areas where we can make a difference. Now, I'm not saying all of us need to leave here today and go be social media warriors and quote-unquote advocates for everything that comes across our feed. That's not even realistic or possible, but we can't allow ourselves to be lulled into apathy either. God has allowed certain issues into our lives, into our sphere of influence, so that we can make a difference in them for his glory. God has placed you at your place of employment so that you can glorify him by the way you passionately pursue your career. God has put people into your life so that you can passionately point them to Jesus. There are things in our, in our real life, real flesh and blood issues that are in our lives, not our lives that we've curated so carefully on Instagram. He's allowed things into our life not to be apathetic towards them, but so that we could glorify God in the way we pursue them. You see, when we live in apathy, we sideline ourselves from the mission of God, and it reveals that our hearts are not driven by the things of God. And God feels pretty strongly about it. To the church at Laodicea in Revelation, he said, I know your works. They're neither cold nor hot. I wish they were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, because you are apathetic, he says, and you aren't cold or hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Strong words. 
You see, uh, writer John Bloom said, in God's mind, fervency, zeal, or passion aren't descriptions of how emotive we are. It's not just me being emotionally expressive. He goes on to say they are gauges that display what our heart treasures and therefore what fuels our life. I can't excuse apathy or lack of fervency because I'm just an introvert. I'm not emotionally expressive, so that passion stuff isn't for me. No, no, zeal and passion are not the same as emotional expression. Apathy is a lack of caring. But zeal and passion and fervency, as we're going to see, comes out of a heart that has been gripped by God's love. When we're apathetic, we sideline ourselves from the mission of God. But I don't want to just stay there this morning. I want to paint a different picture for us. What if, instead of being so overwhelmed with the problems in our world that we become apathetic, we become so overwhelmed by the power of God's love that we are moved, that we are driven into action? You see, spiritual apathy is just the result of a heart that's not moved by God. Two passages I want to look at this morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 12, 11. Hold your place there. We're also going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. The first verse I want to read, though, is in Romans chapter number 12, verse number 11. If you are our guest this morning, thank you so much for worshiping here with us. I'd invite you, if this is your first time here, you can go ahead and pull out your smartphone. You can open up the, the camera app on your phone, and if you aim that camera app right at the QR code on the chair in front of you, that'll pull up a link, fresnochurch.info. And on that website, there is a uh, connection card that you can fill out to let us know that you're here with us this morning. If you're a member and regular attender around here or a guest, you can pull that out as well, and you can go right ahead. I shouldn't have said pull your phone out. Someone's getting a phone call. Um, you can pull that out, and you can find all the notes uh, for this sermon this morning as well. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand. Romans chapter number 12, verse number 11 is the first passage I want to read this morning. Second passage, which will lead us to our first point, is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Romans 12, 11 says, do not lack diligence and zeal. When it comes to being zealous, don't be lazy. Don't lack diligence and zeal. Don't be apathetic, Paul says. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verses 14 and 15 say this. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Because Christ died for all of us, when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are now dead to our sins in Christ. Verse 15, he says, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. So when we get saved, we die, our flesh dies, and then we're raised to walk in newness of life. And he says, but for the one who died for them has been raised. Because we have been raised to life, Paul says that we should no longer live for themselves, but we should live for the one who died for them and was raised. Let's pray this morning, and then we will jump into unpacking these two verses. Father, we thank you so much that you did die for us. And Lord, I pray that as we consider your love this morning, our hearts would be gripped, our hearts would be moved, and it wouldn't just hit us on just simply an emotional level, but Lord, that it would drive our lives into fervent action for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, the first uh, thought, the way we really battle apathy this morning is our first thought this morning, and that is very simply, awaken your heart to the fullness of God's love. Awaken your heart to the fullness of God's love. The Apostle Paul says, it's the love of Christ that compels us. As one Puritan writer said, he said, when we meditate on his amazing love and see how he gives us all his wealth and power, our souls may well faint for joy. He goes on to say, if we could open the storehouse of Joseph's granary and see the plenty that he has stored up for us, we would be so overwhelmed by his love. 
He goes on to say, our minds can't fathom it. Our hearts can't contain it. Who can endure the weight of God's love? You see, the love of Christ, his love for us, is not just this emotional support blanket from when we're having a bad day. The love of God and consequently our love for him, we love him because he first loved us. God's love for us and our love in response to him is something that involves every part of who we are. The Bible says in Luke 10, 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The love of God consumes us completely. It consumes every part of who we are mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. God's love for us, it encompasses every bit of us. It doesn't just compel us on an emotional level, but it also compels us on a mental level. It moves us into physical action in our lives. It compels every part of who we are. Paul describes it as a driving force in the life of a Christian. The Greek word for compel here, it means to compress or to arrest, like you would arrest a prisoner. That's what it means. It means to hold it together. Figuratively speaking, it's used to to compel to preoccupy, to constrain, to hold, to keep in, to press, to be taken with. I mean, we've all seen the teenage boy who's taken with a girl for the very first time, right? And that completely consumes his brain. The problem is there's not a lot of brains to consume, so he just winds up being a knucklehead. That's the idea here. You're just so taken by it, it consumes every part of who you are, and it compels you to live differently. That's why the Apostle Paul says the love of Christ is this compelling force in our lives. It controls us, it constrains us, it animates us, it moves us, it drives us. His love is such a strong binding force in our lives that we have no, we have no, we we can't help but be captivated and driven by it. Because of the love of Christ, think about it, our sins have been reckoned with. They have been accounted for, they have been dealt with, and because he was made to be sin for us, his righteousness was then given to us and we receive his righteous status. He takes our sin, and then he gives us his righteousness. We're connected vitally through our union with Christ because he has imputed, he has implanted within us his perfect righteous life of obedience. He not only gave us his innocence, but also his righteousness. He not only gives us pardon, but he gives us his perfection. When we stand before God, he doesn't see Nick Minerva the sinner. He sees Jesus Christ and the beloved son of his. He was not only condemned in our place as punishment bearer, but he stands in our place as law keeper. Jesus not only died the death that we should have died, but he lived the life we should have lived. Christ died for us, and 1 Corinthians tells us that our old, unbelieving, rebellious self is died in him. And now our new believing selves live. And verse 15 gives us the aim, it gives us the goal of all of this love for Christ, that we might live for him. So as we meditate on his love, as we meditate on his saving grace, as we meditate on all he has done for us, we will be moved into action so that others might know and experience his amazing love, so that others might know and experience his saving grace. We will be given this burning desire that others might see and experience how good he is. The Holy Spirit will drive us towards living like him and living for him. And as a result of this great exchange, we are reconciled back to God. And 1 Corinthians tells us that we have been made into a new creation and now we are agents. We are now sacrificial ministers of his reconciliation. We now live so that all the earth may know. This means we live so that others can experience his love too. It means we live so that others can experience his wisdom. 
so that others can experience his goodness and his grace and his righteousness and his divine power working in them because this glorifies God. When we say this glorifies God, what we mean is this displays his greatness. It displays his worth. It displays the beauty and the wisdom of following him. And when the world looks at it and says, I don't agree with that, or that doesn't make sense to me, we live our lives in such a way that it puts on display the worth of Jesus. Every act of obedience, no matter how big or small, is passionately pursued because it displays the greatness of our God. The more we are captivated by his love, the more we will be driven into action. And as we allow ourselves to be moved by, as we allow ourselves to be awakened by the fullness of God's love, yes, it affects us on an emotional level, but it's not just that emotional support blanket. As we awaken ourselves to the fullness of it, it will drive us to our second point, passionately serving our king. Flip back to Romans 12, 11. Romans 12, 11 says, Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. The Apostle Paul, throughout the entire book of Romans, of Romans 1 through 11, he's just unpacking the gospel. And he says, look, this is for those that are unrighteous. This is for those that are wicked. This is for those who think they're righteous. This is for the law keeper. This is for the religious. And he unpacks our need for salvation. And then as he gets to chapter 12, he says, therefore, because of all of this, we're to live our lives differently. And one of the ways he tells us to live our lives is to be zealous, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. Uh, Basil of Caesarea, or as he's known today, Basil the Great, was a bishop in modern-day Turkey. He was born in 330 A.D., so 330 years after the death of Christ, Basil was born. And he was a very influential theologian in the early church. Um, he, was at, he supported the Nicene Creed, where the early church stood against the heresies of Arianism, which, a little bit of church history, that was just the belief that Jesus was not co-eternal with God, therefore was not really deity the way we would explain and believe that Jesus Christ is God, and he stood against those beliefs. You want a little bit of fun church history, my namesake, St. Nicholas, the guy that kind of morphed into Santa Claus, that's a whole other story. Uh, he was at this, this council, the Council of Nicaea, and the leader that led in this heresy uh, his name was Arius. Nicholas, my namesake, slapped the dude in the face. He just got so, that was an example of what not to do when you're passionate. Um, but Basil, he was there as well. And in his addition to his work as a theologian, he was known for his care for the poor and the underprivileged. He was known for being so zealous for the Christian faith. And in one of his writings that I read this week, his zeal was on full display when he said, what is the mark of a Christian? That God's justice abound in all things. What is the mark of a Christian? That they love one another as Christ has loved us. What is the mark of the Christian? To set the Lord always in his sight. What is the mark of a Christian, he asked? To watch daily and hourly and stand prepared in that state of perfection which is pleasing to God, knowing that at what hour he thinks not, the Lord will come. What is the mark of a Christian? He said, somebody who is completely sold out for the glory of God. A Christian whose heart is awakened to the love of Christ is zealously serving him. It's what marks his life. Living for Jesus means we live to display his greatness. Our lives are no longer driven by what we want. They're driven by what does God want? What displays his greatness? Now it's important that we take a moment and realize that when we're talking about serving God, our, our minds kind of instantly have a preconceived idea of what is serving the Lord. Uh, but I just want to say, for the Christian, everything we do is an act of service to God. Our jobs, the way we parent, the way even we 
have fun and take vacations. Everything we do is service to God. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter number two, the Bible says in verse 15, the Lord took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, and he gave him two jobs, to work it and to watch over it. The Hebrew word for work means to serve. God put Adam in the garden to serve God. Right from the very beginning of creation, we see that God gave man meaningful work to do. This was before sin entered into the picture. And because he was created in the image of God, Adam, like God, was to be a worker. Without the curse of sin, work was this undiluted blessing. So from the very beginning of creation, mankind's purpose has been to serve the Lord, to work. Adam's second task was to watch over the garden. This verb is used throughout Scripture to refer to the action of God towards his people. So get this, when we are working, when we're doing our jobs, when we are working, we're acting as God's ambassadors. We are acting as God's ambassadors to bring his plan to fruition, and we're doing the very thing that God himself does. We tend to kind of treat work like it's this necessary evil, and oftentimes our flesh wants to do just enough to get by, just enough to keep the boss off of our back. But when we view work this way, we miss out on so much of what it is. Work is not simply a means to provide food or clothing or shelter. It's so much more. Work is an inseparable part of God's original design for creation. This is why the Apostle Paul says, look, work fervently. Work as you're serving the Lord because even if your job, even at your job, you are serving God. And of course, this doesn't just apply to our nine-to-five jobs. This applies to every type of work we do. This applies to our work as being a parent. Guys, this applies to our work as husbands. Ladies, this applies to our work as wives. And I know for some of you wives, that's a lot more work. (laughs) Everything we do, whether it's our jobs or mowing the yard, all of the work God has given to us is to be done with the sense of, this is God's assignment for me in this very moment. And because this is God's assignment for me in this very moment, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I'm going to do it with zeal. I'm going to do it with passion because no job is small or meaningless. Everything we do from morning until night is to be done with this sense of passion and zeal and drive because this is what God is calling us to do. This is why Paul is calling us to fervently serve our king. We are to be fully engaged in everything we do as our whole person, giving our minds, giving our hearts, giving our bodies to fully serve our God. The word fervent in the original language in Greek in Romans 12, 11, it literally means to boil. We're to be fervent, zealous. We are to be literally boiling over for the glory of God. You see, intensity matters. Zeal matters. Wholeheartedness matters. You say, Pastor Nick, you don't understand. I'm just not that emotional. I'm just not that of an expressive person. Look, I've seen the way you all argue over masks on Facebook. Like, I know you all are expressive, okay? We shouldn't settle for anything less other than zeal and wholehearted service to our king. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. And we do this through our good works and our good service to him. Consider the following verses with me. Titus 2.14. You'll notice a pattern here. The grace of God, the love of God, and then zealous works. Check it out. Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and cleanse for himself a people for his own possession to do what? Eager to do good works. Eager. Not apathetic. Not, oh, I guess I have to. No, eager, excited, passionate about doing good works. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 
The Apostle Paul said, God's grace is so amazing. He's doing such a work in my life. I'm going to work hard. Nobody's going to outwork me for God. He said later in chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, always not coasting, not absentmindedly, always excelling in the Lord's work. Because you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, when it comes to serving Christ, half-heartedness, lukewarmness, laziness, sluggishness, slothfulness, they ought not to be. I mean, think about it with me, church. Being saved by Jesus Christ is the greatest thing in the world. Now, I know if you're a Lakers fan, you would have thought the greatest thing would have been them advancing in the playoffs, but sorry, as a Phoenix fan, I can't help but get that one in. The greatest thing in the world is living, being saved by Jesus. It means we have eternal life. You can't die. It means you live forever in overwhelming joy. It means nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. It means everything works out for your good. It means all your troubles and sorrows produce an eternal weight of glory. How can we be anything but passionate? We can attack life for the glory of God with wholehearted zeal, burning fervently, literally boiling over because we serve our king. A few weeks ago, we talked about Winston Churchill. I want you to imagine in your mind if he would have walked into the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940. Last week would have been uh, the 81st anniversary of him giving this speech. Imagine if he would have walked into the House of Commons with the Battle of France raging, the threat of Nazi Germany going higher and higher, and if he would have apathetically stood up and be like, I guess we can go on. I mean, maybe we could take a nap in France if it's easy. Maybe we could take a pleasure cruise on the sea and the ocean. Maybe we could lazily fly kites in the air or kind of apathetically take a stroll on the beach or skip on the land. No! He was so driven by his love for his country, so driven by a love for freedom and an utter disgust and unwillingness to compromise in the face of evil that he stood up with the threat of Nazi completely taking over his island and his country. And he said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We'll fight in the seas. We will fight with growing confidence and strength in the air. We will defend our island whatever the cost. He said, we'll fight on the beaches. We'll fight on the landing grounds. We will fight in the fields and the street and in the hills. We will never surrender. And church, I want to remind us this morning that we have something so much greater than love of country beating in our chest this morning. We have the love of God, the almighty, omnipotent power and creator of the universe coursing through our veins, compelling us into action. We have the Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus up from our dead, empowering us into fervent service. Churchill wasn't apathetic in the face of his enemy. It would have been really easy to just look at all the destruction that Nazi Germany was raging across Western Europe and get overwhelmed into inaction. But he didn't. And as a result, the history of the world was changed. Now, friends, we're, personally, we're not engaged in the world war right now. But we are engaged in spiritual battle. God might not be calling you to change the entire world, but he is calling us to fervently serve him and fight our battles in our corner of the world. He's calling us to be his ambassadors here on Marty Avenue or on Paula Road, or on Valentine Street, or on Emerson Avenue. He's calling us to represent him and advance his kingdom, whether we work at a bus depot, or at a call center, or at an elementary school, if you work at a hair salon. It doesn't matter if you work at a law firm or at Walmart. God has placed you there so that you can represent and advance his kingdom. And because our king has already secured our victory on the cross, 
we too can say we will never surrender. Let's be the type of Christians who are so arrested, so compelled, so driven by the love of Christ that we will say, I will fervently serve my king, whatever the cost. Let's cast aside the apathy. Let's cast aside the uncaring, lukewarm spirit. Better yet, let's repent of the apathy. Let's repent of the uncaring, lukewarm spirit and say, I'm going to fervently serve my king. Here's our takeaway, church. Live with all your might for the Lord while you live. Live with all your might, with all your passion, with all your zeal for your king while you live. As we close in prayer, I wanted to do something a little bit different this morning. I, I'm going to pray a prayer that was written by the Puritans. Um, there's two prayers that I want to read in here this morning. Uh, and I think uh, they really kind of fit uh, the, the spirit of our message this morning. So I'm going to pray them. And as I pray each line, I want you to make this your own prayer and ask God that he would give you a burning passion and that zeal for his glory and for his service. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we bless thee that the issue of the battle between thyself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and we contend with a vanquished foe who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heel, may we remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. Our soul with inward joy extols the mighty conqueror. Heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict. Great conflict. If we have gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if, love, if our love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies our heart, if our soul sinks under the pressure of the fight, O thou whose every promise is balm, every touch life, draw near to thy weary warrior. Refresh us that we may rise again to wage the strife, to never tire until the enemy is trodden down. Give us such fellowship with thee that we may defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, the world, with the light that comes not from a creature and which a creature cannot mar. Thou God, our end, you have given us a fixed disposition to go forth and spend our life for thee. If it be thy will, let us proceed in it. If not, then revoke our intentions. All we want in life in such circumstances as may best enable us to serve thee in thy world. To this end, we leave all our concerns in your hands. But let us not be discouraged, for this hinders our spiritual fervency. Enable us to undertake some task for thee, for this refreshes and animates our soul so that we could endure all hardships and labors and willingly suffer for thy name. But oh, what a death it is to strive and labor, to be always in a hurry and yet do nothing. Alas, time flies and we are of little use. Oh, that we could be a flame of fire in thy service, always burning out in one continual blaze, Fit us for singular usefulness in this world. Fit us to exalt in distress of every kind if they but promote the advancement of thy kingdom. Fit us to quit all hopes of the world's friendships and give us a deeper sense of our sinfulness. Fit us to accept as just desert from thee any trial that may befall us. Fit us to be totally resigned to the denial of pleasures we desire and to be content to spend our time with thee. Fit us to pray with a sense of joy, 
of divine communion, to find all times happy seasons to our soul, to see our own nothingness and wonder that we are allowed to serve thee. Fit us to enter the blessed world where no unclean thing is, and to know thee with me always. Amen.